0: hello everybody welcome to a new episode of the dissenter i'm your host ricardo Lopez, and today i'm here with dr david putz he is associate professor of anthropology at pennsylvania state university he studies the neuroendocrine and evolutionary basis of human sexuality and sex differences with special focus on behavior and psychology his research topics include the influence of sex hormones on psychology behavior and anatomy hormonal and genetic influences on sexual differentiation, sexual selection and the evolution of sex differences in voices, faces, bodies, brains, and behavior, the development and evolution of variation in sexual orientation, and the evolution of female orgasm. So, Dr. Putz, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, great. So let's start by talking a little bit about sexual selection, because I guess that many people, when they think about sexual selection, they usually associate it mostly with mate choice, right? That is uh, is, inter, intersexual selection, but then we also have intrasexual uh, I guess we could call it competition, right? Because uh, when it comes to the intrasexual bit, uh, I mean, do you, you uh, do you also use the word selection or not?
1: Yeah, you use the word selection and you know, it's all competition actually. So that is sexual selection is the kind of natural selection that favors traits that um, that aid in competition for mates. And so competition is occurs whenever the use of a resource, including a mate makes that resource unavailable to others. And so there can be a state of competition even if the competitors never see each other. So one mechanism of sexual selection, one form of sexual selection is scramble competition where um, members of one sex, say males, just compete to say locate females who are distributed in the environment. The males may never see each other, but they're still competing. They're just competing through a different form of competition, in this case trying to locate mates. But, yeah, there are multiple forms of mating competition, and one of them is um, attracting mates, and so that favors traits like sexual ornaments and displays and, um, you know, uh, yeah, that that are useful in attracting mates. And then there's um, what's sometimes called contest competition that can favor um, size, strength, aggression, weapons, threat displays, and that's the use of force or threat of force to exclude same-sex competitors from mating opportunities but then there are other forms of mating competition as well, like the scramble competition that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, and when it comes to explaining the evolution of human sexual dimorphism, that is how men and women are different at the level of several different traits, physical, psychological, etc. I mean, is it the case that there is one mechanism that is more important than the others? Like, for example, uh, is it, was it intrasexual or intersexual selection that had a bigger role to play in explaining uh, the evolution of sexual dimorphism in humans?
1: That is a really good question. Um, I think that the relative strength of the different mechanisms of sexual selection certainly differ by sex. So, the kinds of the forms of mating competition that uh, were most important to the evolution of women's phenotypes differs from from men's, and yeah, mathematically, um, one one mechanism must have been more important, but I don't know if we can really um, confidently say in males what was more important. I think that, um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I think that mate choice and contest competition were probably both important. Um, and some of the stuff that I've written that I think, you know, you've, you've probably looked at. Uh, one of the points I wanted to make is that contest competition among males is probably a lot more important than the literature leading up to when I started thinking about this stuff indicated that it, it's, you know, when I started reading this, the literature on human sexual selection as a graduate student, the message that I was getting mostly was it was all about women's mate preferences that shaped men's phenotypes and um, and I was just seeing different evidence that it looked like contests, competition was more important than, you know, seemed to be indicated in the literature and the research that had been done. Um, but both, I think, were probably quite important. And I think, you know, mate choice might be more important in men's evolution than it is in most primate species. Um, and then for women, you know, there's, it really looks like sexual selection among women, too. That, in other words, mating competition among women has shaped their there are secondary sex traits like body fat distribution, you know, really seems like a a sexual ornament. And so that probably mate choice would be more, more relevant there than something like contest, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Could it depend on the trait, I mean, on the specific traits that we're talking about? Because maybe it was the case that some traits were more influenced by one type of selection or the other.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it'll it'll depend on the trait. Um, and, well, you know, to give you one example, um, there's another form of, of mating competition called sperm competition, where um, if more than one male mates with the same female during the same cycle, then that selects for things like um, the production of lots of sperm and large ejaculates and that sort of thing. So across primate species where there's a lot of sperm competition, males tend to have large testes and produce, um, you know, um, faster-moving sperm, for example. And so there's a trait where the, really the only kind of s- sexual selection that could play a role is, is sperm competition. I mean, that, the level of sperm competition can be limited by how successfully males are able to exclude their competitors, um, you know, physically or, you know, by force or threat of force. But, um, so, yeah, it's going to depend, uh, uh, you know, on the trait. Um, and, but then you can sort of make some generalities and, and think about, well, across all male traits. What do they look well designed for? Do they look better do, do males seem to show an evolutionary history of design by female choice? Do they have lots of sort of extravagant or, ornaments that seem like they function in attracting females? Or do males' traits look more like they were designed by contest competition to either directly win fights or to threaten their same sex competitors? And so that's, you know, when I when I started looking at those traits, I started with voice actually and I, you know, wanted to test, okay the hypothesis was a deep, deep male voice should attract females, but maybe it also intimidates competitors. And and it turns out that the effect, um, depending on how you measure it, the effect of the same change in voice pitch is many times more effective at making a guy seem scary um, to other males than it is at attracting females. And then you you look at other traits, you see the same kind of thing. Um, It's quite variable whether women prefer beards, um, sort of uh, on average, maybe, the, the, you know, it, it detracts, but it, a beard always makes the guy look older and more masculine and more dominant, you know. So it, it, anyway, ma- you know, you look at differences body size and musculature um, across species. Females are usually bigger than males, right? I mean, across animal species, most animals are insects, but um, across animal species, females tend to be larger because, you um, you know, if you're bigger, you can produce more eggs, bigger eggs. Um, you know, just basically, you know, fecundity selection. And um, males really only evolve large body size when they compete physically for mating opportunities. Then you get large male gorillas, you know, male elephant seals, that sort of thing. And so, and you know, human males are, uh, you know, their fat-free mass is 40 percent bigger than females, and they have 60 percent more muscle mass. So, you know, they look like a species where there's been some Non-trivial uh, contest competition over our evolution.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've re- you've referred to voices and faces, and I mean you've already alluded a little bit to the fact that attractiveness in humans is kind of a multimodal, right? That is, people pay attention to several different kinds of traits. Uh, so apart from voices and faces, I mean, in your work. What are the kinds of uh, physical traits that you paid most attention to and what could you tell us about them?
1: Uh, you mean in terms of mate choice? Yes. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I've sort of picked, there, there's a huge literature and I, some of my work has been on the face and, uh, it, you know, it makes sense to look at the face because it's, um, it's highly socially salient, you know. We, we get a lot of information about it. There are a lot of features in the face so you could get information about things like developmental stability. Of course, we also communicate through our faces, so there's a lot of expressive. So it makes sense to pay attention to that. Many, many, many researchers have. So I haven't focused on that, partly because it just seemed like uh, how much more was there to do. But I've, we've done some work there. Um, I've used the voice as sort of a model trait for studying human sexual selection. Because um, at the time when I started working on it, there really wasn't a lot done. Um, and uh, it, it, it's also incredibly salient socially where you know a vocal and verbal species and so there's a lot of information communicated there. Um, it's highly sexually dimorphic you know there's a, um, yeah, like a two two to one difference in, in vocal fundamental frequency for example um, and, um, and it's eminently quantifiable you, know, you can measure this thing with like a single number um, in terms of voice pitch um, so I've tended to focus on those, had done some work on the rest of the phenotype and, um, you know, bodies are certainly an important, um, characteristic that conveys information about all kinds of stuff. So we're working, we're doing some research right now on, um, women's body shape and body fat distribution and how, whether that seems to be a better indicator of, um, what's sometimes called reproductive value. your a future number of expected offspring or whether it's a better indicator of current fertility, current fecundity, basically your chance, your chances of having, you know, a successful pregnancy at the moment. Um, and, you know, men's bodies also convey information. That, you know, the musculature maybe conveys important information, certainly to competitors about, um, you know, physical formidability, but then also to the potential mates about a guy's ability to provide for protection or provide resources or... Um, so yeah.
0: Um, so I mean, can we talk about uh, masculine and feminine faces and voices and even bodies in general?
1: We well, sure you can. In, in in so far as there are sex you know large sex differences and so um, yeah, if you want to, um, you know, you could for any of these traits you can measure. Uh, Females and males, and see that there's an average sex difference, and then it's just variable how much overlap there is. So, um, in the case of faces, it's you know faces are hard to measure because they're very a very com- complex 3D topography. Um, but when that's done really well, um, you get sex differences of something like three or more standard deviations, um, and so there's really not much overlap. Um, in voice pitch, there's about a five standard deviation sex difference, and if you included more information about the voice, like timbre, so our, vo- our voice pitch is affected by the mostly by the length of the vocal folds. So, you know, ma- male's uh, voice box, the, the larynx grows out at puberty, and then that causes the vocal folds to grow longer. And, um, and you know, just when you look inside of a piano, you can see that the longer, thicker strings are the ones that sound lower. They're the, they vibrate more slowly when they're hit with a hammer, and they... Um, they sound at lower in pitch, and so that's what happens to men's vocal folds at puberty. They grow long, and then they, they vibrate more slowly. Um, but we also have, on average, men have a longer vocal tract, even controlling for body size, and that causes the voice to sound sort of richer and more resonant. Um, and if you measure all of those things and you sort of try to characterize the masculinity or femininity of a voice, there's about a, se- a seven standard deviation sex difference. Um, but so there's no overlap there's a space between the the most masculine woman's voice and the most feminine man's voice but then in in a sample of you know hundreds of participants but then uh, if you look at bodies you know the height sex difference is about two standard deviations because there's considerable you know the average guy is taller than the average woman but there we all know plenty of women who are quite tall and taller than the average guy and some guys shorter than the uh, average woman so yeah it just depends on the the feature you're talking about. There's a big sex difference in body, in sort of uh, body composition as well. Women have about 40% more body fat, whereas women have uh, men have more muscle mass. So I don't know if I said that backwards. Women more body fat, men more muscle mass. Anyway. So.
0: Yeah. yeah, sure. And when it comes to the brain, isn't it a bit more complicated to talk about a typical female or male brain, at least in the human species? Because as far as I know, it's been, there's been a lot of controversy when it comes to that kind of uh, issue. Right yeah,
1: the, it is harder. And part of the reason is just lack of, of good quality data. Because you know the data that we mostly have about brains are from brain scans that are, um, you know, the resolution isn't great. Um, and when you think about, uh, you know, how if there's a, if there are psychological sex differences, which there are, then um, there must be some underlying neural architecture, right? There have to be differences in the brain. I mean, where else? What is it in your spleen? It's the difference in the brain that causes the differences in psychology, and um, and so. Um, you know they must exist, <clears throat> but they're not necessarily going to manifest themselves as differences in the in the size of some gross brain structure. They could be, you know, much more subtle differences in, in, you know, wiring and connectivity among neurons and even at the molecular level. Um, and that's just information that we don't have. But just looking at that sort of gross level, then some researchers have said, well you can take each one of these features that shows a sex difference and say, is this person masculine or feminine, and then sort of sum up, and you see that there's a lot of overlap, and it's really hard to characterize a brain as male versus female. But more sophisticated statistical techniques show that you can, even with the sort of really weak information about about brain morphology that we have, um, you, can pretty, you can classify a brain according to sex with something like, 70 or more percent accuracy so not great I mean it should be 50 percent by chance right so it's not a whole lot better than chance but but definitely better than chance um, accuracy so yeah but we
0: probably can say that there are at least recurring patterns
1: there are recurring patterns and you know if you I mean really a better measure of brain differences right now would be psychological differences because we can measure that much more precisely than we can measure the brain and in, in living people that you can't actually get inside and pull it apart and look at, look at it under a microscope. Um, and, you know, there's some psychological sex differences that are really large, like gender identity and sexual orientation. You know, there's overlap. There are, you know, anatomical males who, who have an, a gender identity of female and vice versa. And, of course, there are, you know, people who are same-sex attracted as well. Um, but those sex differences are on the order of five or six standard deviations, and so those are really big differences that must have um, associated underlying brain differences, even if we don't know exactly what those are right now.
0: And that that small overlap, when it comes to, for example, gender identity, would correspond to uh, trans people.
1: Right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, when it comes to psychological differences, there are some of them that are a little bit more controversial, at least when people talk about them, like uh, sex differences at the level of cognition. I mean, are there any big sex differences in that domain? Because as far as I know, for example, when it comes to IQ, I mean, there, uh, the curves more or less overlap. I think that the curve for men is a little flatter, and so there are more men at both extremes, right, the lower end and the higher end. But then people also talk about, for example, uh, spatial cognition and verbal cognition. I mean, are, are there any, is it the case that any of those differences are really big or not?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, first, of all, I'll address the IQ um, issue, and uh, there are almost no, there's almost no sex difference in IQ as measured from a standardized test like the, you know, Wais, Wexler Adult Intelligence. What's the S stand for? I don't remember. Um, but anyway, so, it, but yeah, when you use standardized tests to to measure intelligence, there's almost no sex difference. But that's by design, because there are some cognitive, te- you know. Uh, tests that show a male bias and there's some that, that show a female advantage and intelligence tests are deliberately composed of roughly equal proportions so that there's no average sex difference even though there may be a difference in variance. That ma- Males across species tend to have higher variance in traits um, for whatever reasons and that's the, a, an issue of theoretical debate. Um, but um, But then for specific cognitive tasks, yeah, there's some Um, Spatial cognitive tasks like object location memory where women outperform men on average, and there's some like mental rotations um, that men outperform women on average, and by conventional psychological standards, these are large sex differences um, of around, you know, some studies find almost a standard deviation sex difference, but maybe on average it's more like 0.6, 0.7, 0.8, but it, it's also important to note that even what's considered a large sex difference by conventional standards like a, a, a sex difference of of a whole standard deviation if you looked at the the bell distributions of males and females you'd see that they're almost perfectly overlapping that there's really there's a difference in means and you can see that there are two different you know, um, bells but there's, they're so overlapping And so those are the biggest cognitive sex differences are ones that still show a lot of overlap and then you know, for most psychological traits, if you measure them precisely enough with a big enough sample, you'll find a sex difference. But that doesn't mean it's a big sex difference. And, and really, when you think about it, we're the same species that have almost all the same DNA and are adapted to the same environment largely. And so, you know, that's a point that I like to make with my class every semester, that I start talking about the evolution of sex differences. And I, and I stop and I say, I'm worried I'm giving you the wrong impression that, you know, that, that I'm giving you this men are from Mars and women are from Venus um, idea. And really, um, I'm pretty sure that we're all from Earth and that, you know, that, that really males and females are very similar on most psychological domains. But the interesting thing is that we can use evolutionary theory, especially sexual selection theory, to make predictions about where there will be sex differences, where the sex differences in psychology and cognition will be largest. And even you know the direction and sometimes the magnitude of those sex differences. So, um, you know, you know, I I don't want to give the impression that that males and females are different species, but there are some cognitive and other psychological sex differences, and those are explicable by using evolutionary theory. And and you know, they if you if you look at those, it makes us look like another animal. You know, we're animals, and and we look like our closest relatives in many domains.
0: So let me ask you now, uh, is it the case that we can learn a little bit more about sex differences by studying some types of intersex conditions? Like, for example, there are cases where people, um, I, I mean, I think that we can call them abnormalities, right? developmental abnormalities, like, for example, uh, the case of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, and others, where many times people exhibit some sort of intersex condition. And I mean, because that is developmental, and that happens many times because people are exposed to certain types of hormones during their prenatal life, or, the, or sometimes even they have some chromosomal uh, abnormalities, both sexual or autosomal. I mean, there are many different types of conditions, but uh, can we learn more about sex differences by studying those, uh, those issues?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in um, experimental animals like rats or mice, you can just, when, when male rat pups are born, castrate them. And then you can see what's the effect of having no further testosterone on a male's, you know, brain and psychological development. Or you can take uh, female rat pups and, and treat them with testosterone and see what the effect on their behavior and brain is. Um, and you know, every time that's been done in mammals, if you manipulate, say, testosterone, that affects behavior. Um, and you know, in most cases, we know the associated brain effects. Um, some of them but uh but of course you can't do an experiment like that in humans so what we're forced to rely on are are we like other mammals and if so we can't do a true experiment but we can look at what are sometimes referred to as natural experiments or experiments of nature where um, sex hormone action is naturally variant due to higher than normal or lower than normal levels of some sex hormone or even variation in sensitivity to sex hormones so in the case of complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome these are Um, You know, people with a Y chromosome that a person with a Y would normally develop into a typical male, um, and they have the gene on the Y chromosome that normally results in male development. The SRY gene causes the fetal gonads to become testes, and those testes, um, as far as we know, produce at least average and maybe even a little bit higher than average male levels of testosterone and other androgens. But the difference is that people with this condition um, don't have a functional androgen receptor, so the androgen, the testosterone and other androgens travels throughout the body in the bloodstream, that's how, how the hormones get to their target tissues, Um, but the message is never received, and so as a consequence, the external phenotype looks completely feminine, vagina instead of penis, and, um, you know, so these are raised as, look like girls, raised as girls, Um, and then we can look at what's the effect on the brain you know, later on and in childhood and in adulthood, is, is psychology. This is a person born with testes, with high testosterone levels, but no message of androgen, no testosterone message. Um, and the answer is, and, and by the way, once they're conditioned, you know, maybe they don't go through puberty, they don't start to menstruate, and so their mom, you know, the, this is a girl's mom, takes her in to the doctor and finally they do some tests. Oh, okay, you've got this condition, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, um, so you're not going to be able to have kids. Um, you don't have ovaries. Um, we should probably do surgery to remove the testes because they could become cancerous. Um, and you know, but anyway, and then, and then, get on hormone replacement to have breast development, that sort of thing. Um, but then we could look at, okay, well, what's, what's the effect of not receiving any androgen message on psychology? And the answer is that, um, you, you know, as far as we know, women with complete androgen and sensitivity are, are completely feminine and they're, psychology if, you know some studies have found more feminine than their unaffected female relatives perhaps because you know women typically have produce androgen from their ovaries and their uh, adrenal glands and they ha- they receive that message because they have functional androgen receptors um, the only problem with this experiment of nature is that it's hard to attribute the effect the effect on psychology to um, not getting a message an androgen message in the brain or how much of it is because they look f- and are raised as females and so it could be a social effect that if you look like a girl and you're raised as a girl maybe that's why psychologically they're fe- they're feminine and so maybe a better experiment of nature is the other one you mentioned congenital adrenal hyperplasia where um, this is a condition where uh, a, a, pre- a Uh, an enzyme is missing that normally produces cortisol, which is a hormone that's produced in the adrenal glands, the glands that sit on top of the kidneys. And cortisol is important in a stress response. And there's a missing enzyme that causes all the precursor that would normally be converted into cortisol to be shunted down the androgen pathway. So basically you have girls that have an otherwise normal prenatal development, but their androgen levels, prenatally and then early postnatally, are elevated because their adrenal glands are producing high levels of androgen. And so then these are girls look like girls, raised as girls, in some cases more intersex. It depends on the severity of the condition, whether they're more virilized or masculinized at birth. But, um, but um, typically raised as girls, and then you could say what's the effect of elevated early androgens on um, psychology. And the answer is that, you know, girls with, con- with congenital adrenal hyperplasia look... Um, masculinized, intermediate, and in most cases a little bit more like their unaffected male relatives than their unaffected female relatives, and in, um, in gender stereotypical behaviors like toy preferences and levels of physical aggression and that sort of thing. And, and also, you know, gender-type behavior, gender identity, and sexual orientation also tend to be um, masculinized in those groups. So. And, and spatial cognition. They tend to be better at male-biased spatial tasks and worse at female as far as we know. So that's that's a pretty good experiment of nature, but there are others that we could talk about as well. But yeah, that's in humans, you have to rely on the sort of natural variation, because doing an experiment like you could do in, in a lab animal just wouldn't be ethical. You wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> so.
0: Yes. And then, as you've alluded to, there are many different types of factors uh, going around there. And so, for example... It's also very hard to completely exclude at least some uh, socio cultural factors, particularly when maybe talking about the case of complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, where the person looks like the sex that then she identifies with. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, because none of these is a true experiment, and they're not, you know, double-blind people are aware of the condition, it's impossible to perfectly disentangle the effect of socialization and the effect of of androgens directly affecting brain development. So, you know, in the case of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, you know, the parents know, the physicians know, um, the kids, you know, I guess that's probably variable, the extent to which they know they have a condition, but that can affect their treatment by caregivers and that, you know, so it's it's not a perfect experiment. Um, but I would say that there are many converging lines of evidence, and of course, there's just parsimony. Why, why would you why adopt a completely different explanation for the sexual differentiation of the brain and behavior in humans than occurs in every other vertebrate that we've studied? Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, and we could talk about other other lines of evidence that that support the idea that we are like a typical vertebrate in that regard. But anyway. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and maybe let's get into that question, if you could give us some more lines of evidence, and if you think that those lines of evidence um, exclude the hypothesis that um, the major sex differences that we find, that we find between men and women uh, can be pure sociocultural constructs.
1: Okay. Um, I'll t- I will think probably the strongest evidence are there are a handful of cases of um, males with normal prenatal male development, in terms of hormone signaling anyway, being raised as girls for one reason or another. And the two reasons are there are a couple of cases of um, penile ablation where there was a circumcision accident that destroyed the penis. And this happened decades ago. And at the time, th- there was this idea of... Um, you know, sort of gender equipotentiality, that it just matters how you're raised. And so if you raise a kid as a boy, it becomes a well-adjusted, you know, boy and man. And if you raise a kid as a girl, then girl, you know. Um, That was the thinking. And so at the time when, you know, a circumcision accident occurred, you know, well, uh, we can't really do a very good job of reconstructing a functioning penis, but we can do a better job making a vagina. So, you know, how about you have a daughter? Um, and that's happened a couple times, and then also there's some cases of a condition called um, cloacal extrophy, which is a, an abdominal malformation, um, where, again, it was the decision was made to try to construct a vagina and raise the kid as a girl. And um, the best known of the penile ablation cases was the famous John Joan case of a, um, you know, a, a boy then subsequently raised as a girl until he eventually rebelled against that and the sort of... You know, 13, 14 years old, um, and said, "I'm not a girl." And then the parents said, "Okay." In in consultation with a psychiatrist and an endocrinologist, um, then they let the the kid know, and he he transitioned back to being a male. And David, David Reimer, Um, but very few of these cases indicate um, the natal boy being satisfied as a as a female, Um, and there are seven cases where um, we've researchers followed up in adulthood and, and uh, ascertained um, sexual orientation and in all seven of those cases, um, attraction was to females despite being raised as, as female and then in six of the seven gender identity was male um, despite being raised as a female. So I think there's pretty strong evidence because if you if you take a boy and you remove his penis and testes and you raise him as a girl um, and even start giving him female hormones at the time of puberty and that doesn't create a well-adjusted female then that sort of makes you question the the strength of gender socialization on on being able to produce a you know a female um, gender identity um, right but so I think that's some of the strongest evidence that we have uh, but again it, it's still not i mean people know parents know physicians know so it's not a perfect experiment anyway sorry go ahead
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, I was just going to say that right at the beginning, uh, one of the biggest sex differences that you mentioned had to do with uh, sexual orientation. That is almost 100% of uh, females or women are attracted to males or men and uh, vice versa. So, uh, But do we already know enough about the biological foundations of sexual orientation or not?
1: Um, so first I'd, I want to say that uh, I wouldn't say that it's almost 100%, uh, but uh, so something like... Uh, three or four percent of men are primarily exclusively or primarily attracted to other men and something like one or two percent of women are exclusively or primarily attracted to other women but then of course there's you know gradation from completely heterosexual to completely homosexual in your orientation um, and so you know it may be more like I I, don't, I guess we can quibble about what almost a hundred percent means but I don't I don't want to make it seem like that it's you know um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I understand okay. what you're okay. saying.
1: Yeah, but but then in answer to your question, um, uh, do we know the underlying biology? We don't. Um, I think we have a little bit better grip on it for women, insofar as you know, there seems to be pretty good evidence now from a bunch of different lines of you know, a bunch of different sources that people who are raised as girls um, will be more attracted to women in adulthood if they have a stronger androgen signaling message during development whether it's because they have congenital adrenal hyperplasia um, or um, you know in the case of, um, of gender reassignment at birth it's because they had a male typical hor- hormonal regime during development prenatal development and maybe even some early postnatal um, and then they were reassigned and so those people are completely male typical in their orientation almost you know, almost all um, are attracted to women, despite being raised as girls. And then the other extreme, you've got gonadal and chromosomal males that are girls and women because they have complete androgen sensitivity. And so there's zero androgen message there, and they're you know female typical in their orientation, prefer males. So I think the the evidence is pretty good um, for people raised as females that it really what makes the biggest difference is how much androgen message you had. Early in development, but then for for typical males, I, I don't think the evidence is very good that the difference between a gay man and a straight man has to do with some global difference in androgen signaling. Um, for for one thing, um, if say a gay man had just generally low androgens during development, then their genitals should be less virilized, less you know the penis and scrotum shouldn't be fu- fully development fu- fully developed, and there's that's not the case at all. So, you know, there's other evidence that say um, there's, you know, about the fraternal birth order effect, that the more older brothers a guy has, the more likely he is to be gay. And there there could be something going on there with um, moms being increasingly immunized against uh, antigens, basically proteins produced by male fetuses that the mom doesn't produce herself and that her body builds up an increasingly large immune reaction to these male antigens when she gives birth to more and more male you know more and more sons and then that in some way affects the development of the brain development of later born sons um, and that explains that effect explains maybe twenty percent of the cases of, uh, of homosexuality in men but yeah I think we don't understand the development nearly as well in males as we do in females and there's, there's still a ton to be done. so uh, you know I think we're just kind of chipping away it varies, but yeah, we don't have a, a solid, solid answer yet.
0: Okay, so uh, you refer to the birth order effect. Does that occur when a woman has a, a baby, a male baby, and then she has another one? I mean, uh, as the number of male children increases, the probability of uh, them having a little brother that is homosexual increases. Is that correct?
1: It does. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that's been established through many, many studies. R- really, Ray Blanchard, um, who was at uh, University of Toronto, was um, the the person who really sort of brought that phenomenon to light. But it's been shown across many different samples many times that... Um, that you know, having more older brothers increases a guy's odds of being gay himself. Um, and a, a former postdoc of Ray's, Tony Bogart, showed in a more recent paper that some evidence for th- their earlier hypothesis that um, there it really is an, a sort of an immune response. That basically males um, produce more of, or or only males produce some um, proteins that females don't. And if, if you, there's a protein that you don't make that's inside your body, your immune system will recognize that as foreign and start to mount an immune response. You build up antibodies to it. And at childbirth is a place where moms could get exposed to these male-specific proteins, these male-specific antigens, um, because, you know, there's a lot of bleeding, the tearing of the mom, and there's, there's a mixing of blood, and there's a chance um, for exposure. And so that's the idea, that um, that moms get exposed to male-specific antigens during childbirth. Their body builds up an immune response. The way that your body can kind of remember exposure is by having antibodies still you know, hanging around, which is very functional from an immune perspective. You, If you're exposed to some protein, your body produces these antibodies so that it's ready to mount an immune response if you're exposed to the thing again. Um, and so then, yeah, the more suns, the bigger the immune response. And in some way, that could affect brain development. And and, you know, those researchers have done quite a bit of work to sort of try to pin down, you know, where in the brain these effects might be and what specific um, uh, antigens, you know, we might be talking about. Um, and you know, it's it's a beautiful hypothesis with with some pretty decent supporting evidence. But again, it explains maybe 20% of the cases of homosexuality in males. And um, it in, I think, if I remember right, having one older brother increases... Uh, guys' odds of homosexuality by about a third of the base rate, which is about 3%. So it, you go from 3% to 4% if you have one older brother, and from 4 to 5% chance if you have two older brothers and so on. So you'd have to have, like, whatever, 48 older brothers to have a more than 50% chance of... And that's never happened before, um, but have more than a 50% chance of being gay. gay.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there already any good evolutionary account... Of that phenomenon, I mean, have people been proposing any hypotheses as to why that happens? Happens.
1: There, so there are hypo. I think probably the. I can answer this in a few ways. The, I would guess that the maternal immune response is probably not function. It the, creating a same-sex attracted. Sun is not the the function. The function is recognizing foreign proteins of any kind, and being able to mount an immune response to them. Um, But there has been some theorizing about, you know, especially. So we know that sexual orientation is heritable. In other words, a substantial proportion of the variation among people and who they're attracted to is caused by genetic differences, and that number seems to get smaller over time as more precise studies are conducted, now it seems like maybe about 30% of the variation in um, sexual orientation is due to genetic differences. That doesn't mean any of it has to do with socialization, and I think there's almost no evidence that that, that plays much of a role. It, you know, the rest is environment, but it can be prenatal environment, like, say, hormonal signaling, for example. But but that's it poses an interesting evolutionary question of if sexual orientation is partly heritable, that is, there are some genetic variants that increase somebody's probability of being attracted to members of their own sex. How do those genetic variants, how do those alleles persist in populations? They should decrease reproductive success. They should you know, sort of hinder their own passage into the next generation. And so there's been some theorizing about how that works. And you know, one possibility is these genes could make some people same-sex attracted, but in other um, people they could increase their reproduction in some ways. Um, so, in other words, a gene can have different effects in different bodies. Um, that's one idea, and there's some evidence for that. Another one is that um, that male homosexuality can create a phenotype that makes a male something like a helper at the nest, which is what you see in some species where a reproductively mature individual, this happens in some birds like Florida scrub jays and, and white-fronted bee-eaters in sub-Saharan Africa that a reproductively mature individual instead of finding a mate stays home and helps care for helps care for uh, nestling for siblings and so that you know Paul Vesey and uh, Doug Vanderlaan have done some testing in 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 Samoa to see if androphilic male attracted um, males are more sort of solicitous of their nieces and nephews and they found some support for that so um, I don't think it really, you know, to me a more functional uh, trait would be, um, n- you know, asexuality or something. You know, if the if the if the function is helping at the nest, why have an orientation at all? Why be attracted to to somebody? But anyway, it could it could help explain the persistence of alleles that would otherwise seemingly decrease one's reproduction if you can sort of help the, those genes get passed on by not reproducing yourself but by helping your relatives to reproduce who also have those same alleles anyway yeah, yeah. So, but right. so there's been but yeah been plenty of work on that i don't think anything that you know there's certainly no nail in the coffin you know evidence it, it's just it's sort of quite a mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and I think that another mystery that we have yet to solve has to do with the female orgasm, right? Because there are also several different hypotheses on the table. I guess that one of them has to do with um, maybe the female orgasm uh, allowing for the sperm to be retained better? Mm -hmm. I mean, if the female just had sex with a male that she is very attracted to. Uh, And I guess that another hypothesis would be that um, female orgasm would be an indicator of the quality of the performance of that particular male. And I guess that there are also other hypotheses, right?
1: Yeah, um, so... I mean, it's sort of a. We know that um, orgasm in women is not necessary for reproduction, um, and so you know, then that's been sort of a for several decades now. It's been, uh, you know, ch- changes, but it's been hotly debated from time to time. There'll be a a new wave of studies, and um, but one hypothesis is that women's orgasm is sort of like men's nipples. That um, it, it's a f- non-functional byproduct of a trait in the opposite sex. So, nipples are functional in female mammals um, to, you know, feed offspring. And in some mammal species, males develop nipples too, just because they share some development. Um, and so, the idea is that, you know, an f- orgasm in women might be a trait like that, where it's orgasm is functional in men but not in women, and women have it just because they share development. Um, that's one hypothesis, but. Uh, th- yeah, then there are, there's other hypotheses having to do with orgasm increasing the probability of conception, even if it's not necessary for conception. Um, and one um, piece of evidence that I find pretty compelling is there have been a couple of studies that have treated uh, female participants with a hormone called oxytocin, which is a hormone that's released during sexual arousal, but especially at orgasm. And when women were treated with oxytocin, so what happens normally, and they were also these are, you know, uh, women who are just game for any, any study, I guess, because um, they had a, um, a fluid the same viscosity as semen um, was deposited uh, in the vagina, and normally that is taken up into the uterus. But that's not where conception takes place. Conception takes place in the oviducts normally. So an egg comes down from the ovary, and the sperm meets it, and you have fertilization, or the sperm are waiting, and then you know because they actually kind of embed themselves in the epithelium there um, for a while. Um, and what this study found was that um, that the the sperm-like, the semen-like fluid was taken up into the oviducts increasingly as um, uh, with uh, with oxytocin treatment. So oxytocin caused the the fluid to be brought up into the oviducts, and the closer you got to ovulation, the bigger the follicle was um, that was going to release an egg, the more the transport was just up the oviduct where the egg was going to be released. So the end result is a hormone that is released into the body at high levels after orgasm. When you treat women with that, it brings sperm toward the egg. And to me, you could say, well, that was a study and you know, that was the dosage was super physiological, higher than normal but it's still hard to explain why hormone released at orgasm causes sperm to be transported toward an egg if that's not its function in nature, you know? Um, and so that was, two, a couple of studies have shown that, and in fact, you know, one of them showed that um, the more ipsilateral transport there was, the more that the female reproductive tract transported the sperm-like fluid just up the oviduct where the egg was coming down, the higher the probability of pregnancy later in that woman. So, in other words, her body seemed to be better at transporting sperm to the right place. Um, that was, you know, that's pretty strong evidence. But then, then there's another question of uh, with whom, you know, that um, if if you're going to promote conception, it doesn't mean you should promote conception with everybody. And so then there's a the hypothesis that orgasm sort of functions as a mate choice mechanism. And, um, you know, that it's, and this happens in a lot of species, that females mate, choose mates in a variety of different ways. I mean they can solicit copulations, they can be more receptive to certain males, um, and they can continue to choose mates during copulation. In some species, if a female is copulating and the male's lower quality, she leaves without, you know, where he's transferred fewer sperm, for example. So, you know, orgasm could also function as a mate choice mechanism. And there's some evidence that women are more likely to have orgasms with males who are higher in quality, either as long-term mates or potentially as in terms of their genetic quality, which, you know, makes sense if you're a sexual species and half of all of your offspring's DNA comes from somebody else, it makes sense to be judicious about where those other, where those other genes are coming from.
0: Right. And what about the multiple orgasm bit? Because, I mean, women are able to experience multiple orgasms, but uh, men, not so much. At, right. at least without uh, pausing for a little bit. So, uh, I mean, what about that?
1: Well, yeah. So, yeah. You know, what about it is a great question. I mean, we don't know the function of any aspect of of female orgasm right now. You could speculate that a multiple orgasm could do something like um, create, um, you know, more efficient sperm transport or. You know, there's also the psychological aspect of orgasm, right? It feels really good, and it's hard to imagine that something that is so emotionally salient as orgasm is function is non-functional. You know, you'd think that it's going to affect subsequent behavior, if not just with the same mate, whether you're going to you're interested in that person and to have sex again or for a long-term relationship. Um, But another interesting thing about the fact that women have long their orgasms last longer and they're more often multiple. Is that it sort of goes against the grain of the hypothesis that it's just a byproduct of orgasm in men, because typically um, non-functional traits, including byproducts, are reduced evolutionarily. Either um, you know because they're costly, traits t- typically have some cost that's compensated by some benefit. So if there's no benefit, then the costs cause them to be reduced in, in manifestation, or just because any mutation that disrupts the expression of the trait um, isn't selected out because it doesn't matter and so I can give you an example of like uh, you know cave-dwelling species like there are many species of fish that are, have no eyes if they're deep-sea dwelling or they're cave-living then they're close relatives they live in the light have eyes but these species that are say cave-dwelling have lost their eyes because either eyes are costly to produce and there's no benefit if there's no light or any mutation that arises that disrupts the development of an eye Selection doesn't care, so that mutation is free to spread. Um, and then the same way, you'd say, well, if women's orgasm is non-functional, then selection should make it vestigial, and it's less frequent. You know, like women are less likely to have an orgasm from sex, but that could be functional if the function is mate choice. You know, the, but uh, but the manifestation itself seems to be bigger, if anything, and that's hard to explain if it's a byproduct.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so just one last question, Dr. Putz. Sure. Uh, what are the kinds of topics that uh, that you are working on the most at the moment?
1: Well, that's oh, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the question. Um, so, so the research in my lab sort of is uh, forks in, in two different directions that that in, over and often interlap and intertwine, um, and. Um, one is the sort of hormonal basis and, and, and also genetic, but mainly endocrine you know, hormonal basis for um, psycho, human psychological traits and especially sex differences. So we're working on things like um, we're looking at a condition where people don't go through puberty on their own. Their hypothalamus doesn't tell the pituitary to tell the gonads to start producing sex hormones at puberty. And so we can look at what's the effect of that, of that condition. And then they get on hormone replacement therapy but we can look at what's the effect of having this condition where sex hormones were low from late in gestation until the time of puberty on psychology. And then we can also look at things like what's the effect of hormone replacement therapy um, and other studies looking at current hormone levels, like, say, um, how women's um, psychology changes across the ovulatory cycle with changes in estradiol and progesterone and that sort of thing. So that's one sort of prong of the research. And then the other one is the understanding the evolution of um, sex differences and mating-related traits. And so we're looking at things like, said. So, you know, we use voice as sort of a model trait for studying human sexual selection. So we're, say, one study is a big cross-cultural study to look at what's the effect of experimentally manipulating voice pitch on social perceptions across societies. So we've got, you know, more than 20 societies, and we can look at um, how consistent are those effects on social... Perceptions and how do they differ across societies? And can we predict some of those differences um, using, you know, variation in cultural behaviors, uh, cultural variables? Um, And then another one is why do we pay attention um, to traits like voice pitch? Um, You know, why would we say why would males defer to mates, resources, social status to a competitor with a deeper voice? What does it tell you? And so we're looking at things like, um, you know, markers of immune function or hormone levels or um, uh, you know, anthropometric traits like strength to see, you know, if voice pitch actually tells a person something useful about a potential mate or a competitor that, you know, makes that explains why we pay attention to that trait. So, anyway, those are, but you know, there are probably 30 different studies that we're, we're working on, but that hopefully gives you a little flavor of the, the types of research, anyway. So.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. And uh, where people can find your work? Uh, on, on the internet or elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, whenever I want to know about somebody's research, I go to Google Scholar and I sort by date because I want to see what's the most recent stuff they've done. You can also uh, sort by what's cited the most. But, you know, also uh, my, my lab um, website. Okay, It's called the Behavioral Endocrinology uh, and Evolution Lab and it's uh, puts lab, P-U-T-S lab, one word, la.psu.edu, um, and you can find information about what we're doing there.
0: Oh, so, uh, I will be leaving links to your work in the description box of the interview, Dr. Putz. And I mean, I really love your work, so that's the main reason why I invited you on the show. And maybe somewhere in the future, we could have another conversation. So I don't that know. Sounds,
1: yeah, it's been really great talking to you too. Thank you very much.
0: Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields, so to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just one dollar, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, you can also support me via Subscribestar or Paypal. And please share the video, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litska, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas, Francis Ford, hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jana Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Giddy, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Annie Ankata, Jacob Klinkby, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintys, Ruth Voss, and Bo Weingard. And also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.